We're going to start off with a pop quiz. Don't worry, it's not graded. What do these four words have in common? And if you say my sermon, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to leave. No. What do the words awful, egregious, naughty, and nice have in common? Nothing. There we go. Maybe this is what some of these lament psalms kind of sound like, right? But that's not where I'm going with this. These four words have not aged well. These words, when they were originally created, when they were first coined, they had a meaning which is exactly opposite of how we use them today. Awful means bad, right? You're not going to go, I had an awful time, honey. No, <laughs> that's not going to get you the, the, the pat on the back from a spouse or a significant other. Awful actually means full of awe, as in awesome. That's what the word originally means. However, it doesn't mean that now. Egregious. How many of you want to be egregious? Yeah, well, you know, the word egregious actually means the best of set apart the highest of a group. Interesting how that word has now become the thing you don't want. Naughty. Naughty used to mean to be without, as in not, as in I have not, which is an old English way of saying I have nothing. So naughty has gone from being I have nothing to I am being inappropriate. And then nice. You know, this is a word that we say, oh, she looks nice. Well, the Latin, which is where we get the word nice from, means ignorant. So to say, wow, you look nice, means to look, you look kind of dumb. <laughs> These are words that have not aged well. Another word that is common now, and if you're around anyone under the, under the age of about 23, you'll hear the word literally, as in it actually happened is what the word means. However, what it means now is it means emphasis on what I'm saying, not that it actually happened. And as a matter of fact, this is so used and a lot on the internet, it's so used now that Oxford has changed the definition to be the opposite of what the definition actually is. So in the definition, you see something that actually happened or something that didn't happen, but you want to say it's important. So interesting how words have over time developed. Well, there's another word that has developed over time, and it's what we're going to focus on today. It's the word revival. Revival. This word actually is found in our text today in a couple different ways. Revival is a word that we're all familiar with. Usually when involved in church, it has something to do with some sort of um, activity that the church does. The first great revival in the United States was in the Great Awakening over 300 years ago. This was a time where leading up to the Revolutionary War, and some historians would say probably led to the Revolutionary War, it was a revitalizing, a reinvigorating with life of the churches in the colonies. It was a truly revitalization, which means to bring back to life. A few decades later, we had the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was not about people in church becoming more in love with God and being stirred up and brought back to life. Instead, it was outward focused and it was all about evangelism. And the word revival took on the idea of we're going to go and we're going to get people and bring them in and we're going to teach them about Jesus and we're going to save them, get them saved. That's not revitalizing, that's just vitalizing, right? 
It's not reviving, it's viving. See, I know those aren't words, but if we say it enough, right, it'll become a word. So this revival has changed. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up outside of the, the city out in Sandy, and I remember at our, our Baptist church, we would have revivals, and they would come to our church, and they would come on a Sunday, and the, the, the pastor would preach, and we'd say, revival is here, and that would be like our, our thing. And, and yeah, it was inwardly focused, but it was also outwardly focused. We didn't do the tents or anything like that, like some revivals were. But I always loved it as a kid, because at the end of the revival, as a good Southern Baptist church, you know what we did at the end of the revival? Potluck. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So you got to the potluck at the end, and you were like, yes, this is life, right? And as an elementary school boy, I loved, I loved potlucks, because... You know, mom would took her eye, take her eyes off me for a second, and I would have a plate full of dessert, which is pretty close to heaven. <laughs> Not so much anymore. But the, this idea of revival has become something that is planned, that is scheduled. And while I think the intention of the revival, that, especially the ones that I attended, was to get the church on fire for the Lord, many people think of revival as something that is outwardly focused and it's other-focused. It's about getting people stirred up. But this passage actually talks about getting us stirred up. Charles Spurgeon says, revivals, if they're genuine, do not come when you whistle for them, just like the wind will not come when you whistle for it. See, we can't schedule revivals, but we can prepare for them. So this is what we need to do. We need to get our hearts in the right place because revival doesn't start with a big banner and an outside preacher coming in or a tent. It starts with the people sitting in the chairs right now. It starts with our hearts individually. So this is a corporate, it's going to affect the entire church, but it starts with us individually. The first great awakening was all about internal, second was all about external. And really, they build into each other, but we need to focus on the internal. Evangelism affects the other fellow, revival affects me, famous quote. So this, this revival that we're talking about here in this passage, what does that mean? So what is the biblical definition of revival? What is it? Well, it is a sovereign movement of the Lord that affects many Christians which then affects many churches, which then affects the community, returning them to the Lord, pulling them away from their worldly preoccupations and refocusing them on the Lord. Things such as conviction of sin, boldness of witness, purity of life, conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions, all of these flow from revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent a lot of time studying revivals, he said, a revival is a means of entering into heaven on earth. Because ultimately, revival means each of us comes back to life. And this life is not a thing that's going to end like our physical lives do, but this is a life that's going to go on for eternity and continue on and on. And we get to step into that right now. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, a revival is a miracle. It is the hand of the Lord and it is mighty. It can only be explained as the direct action and intervention of God. Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. A revival by definition is the mighty act of God. It is a sovereign act of God. It is independent as that. Man can do nothing. God alone does it. 
but we can prepare the fields. We can prepare our hearts. We can start longing for that, and we can pray to that end. So today, we're going to really tap into the fact that God is a God of revival. This is what He's all about. Our world is dead, and He comes in and gives life. And then the ones He's given life to, many of you in the room have had that life. We need more of it. This is that outpouring of the Spirit, the overflowing of the Spirit. H.B. Charles, one of my favorite preachers, he said, I need more of the Spirit. And somebody said, but aren't you a Christian? Didn't you already get the Spirit? He goes, yeah, but I leak. (laughs) Is that not us? We need more of the Spirit because we are very porous. We've got all these places where sin is letting the Spirit leave us. We need more of the Spirit. When revival comes, it quickens, it gives new life. It takes us from being self-focused and makes us kingdom-focused. It takes us from wanting our preferences to wanting God's preferences. And this revival is what we need. The immediate fruit of revival is that we go from backsliding to leaning in and reaching for more grace. And that's what we're looking at today. So this psalm, the big idea, this psalm is an example prayer, it's an example prayer put to music for how to position our hearts in preparation for God to turn us back to Him. It's a, it's a getting our hearts in the right place for revival. It's getting us to think, okay, what do I need to work on in me so that the Lord can use me fully? Some of you, it will be, I have to confess some sin and go a different directions. Others of you will be, I got to get my affections turned the right directions. Others of you, it may be that you need to break a relationship that's leading you the wrong direction. But for every single one of us, we need to pray more. We need to spend more time asking the Lord to do a work right here first before we start talking about all the work he needs to do this way. And then pray for this community because this community is what's going to affect the community outside these walls, not the other way around, Lord willing. And so that's what we're looking for today. This psalm is an example of how to position ourselves so that we're ready for what the Lord's about to do because the Lord's going to do something. If you haven't noticed, this has been an odd year and a half. The Lord's doing something, and I think I've got my, I think I know what it is. I'll tell you in a minute. So why revival? Why is this word popping up? In our church, it says new life, right? Well, new life is for the people outside. That's the name of our church. We want people to know if they come here, they're going to get new life. For you all, you're here. It's a renewed life that we need, and it's a constant renewal that we need. And it starts with us. It starts with each of you individually as members of Christ Church and members of New Life Church. This is not about growing our numbers. It's not what that's about. This isn't a, you know, grow the church, get more people in the pews or in the chairs. It's about maturity. It's about growth in your relationship with the Lord. Because the number one attractant for people to come into church and become believers and stay believers is other believers around them who are mature and who are walking with the Lord. That's attractional. That's what brings people in. That's all the early church had. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have PowerPoint. They didn't have the musicians that we had. They didn't have the the songs that we had. They had, they'd been changed by Jesus. When When I think about this, I think about directions. You know, Anybody, uh, anybody under, well, I'll say under the age of 44, because that's me. Um, anybody under the age of 44 doesn't really have to remember directions much anymore. 
because they got a cell phone. But every once in a while, you hear a story of a cell phone directions, and it takes them the wrong direction. Um, they end up in a lake or something. In fact, there was an Office episode about that, if you have seen The Office. But I think about directions. Most of us have lived our lives without having something telling you, turn right here, turn left there, turn around, you missed it, right? Instead, we had to remember directions. See, Katie and I, we both do directions differently. She knows the names of every street, okay? You go down here to Oatfield, you turn on Thiessen, then you go on McLaughlin, and you turn left on, and she knows all of those. For me, I'm all, like, landmark-oriented. So you're going to go down here, and you're going to go right past the Goodwill, and then you're going to turn right at that building. It's, the, it's right by the library, which is the... And then turn right at the 7-Eleven, because everybody needs to know where 7-Elevens are, and keep going, right? But the reason I can do that is because I have been there. The reason she can do that is because she has been there. See, we can't com- reach our community for Christ if we don't go there first. It has to start with us before we can walk out the door and do it with anybody else. It has to start here. So you may say, okay, okay, you know what, Pastor John, I get it, okay, revival, but you know, I feel like I'm reading the book of Revelation every morning when I open up my newspaper, or I'm looking on the internet, or I'm watching the news. So what if revival's not coming? Because I think that's what the Lord's doing. I think the Lord is working a revival in our culture. I think the Lord's working a revival right in this room. Well, does that mean we're going to have a third great awakening, or a fourth, or fifth, or however you want to measure it? Maybe. But if not... I do know this for a fact. Every single one of us is going to be before the Lord someday. Some of us will be because the Lord takes us home and it's our time. We celebrated Bill Bill Pearson's life yesterday. The Lord said his time. Some of us are going to have that. Others of us are going to be here when the Lord calls it quits and the final trumpet sounds, whether that's a rapture or he just comes and says, I'm done. However that ends up playing out, We're going to be before the Lord. And wouldn't it be nice to be working for the Lord when he comes to get us? Wouldn't it be nice to have our testimony not be, you know, they just kind of faded off into the sunset and didn't really really focus on God, but I knew they knew him. Instead of being, you know, until the moment they died, they were out there preaching the gospel. They were out there. They were in their Bible the day they died. They were in the Word the day they died. They were telling people because they were full of life. Just because your outer shell is dying doesn't mean your internal spiritual life is dying. If anything, it should be more vibrant than all of the younger people in the room. Can I get an amen? So, The way we picture this is the revival needs to happen in us because we're either stepping into eternity on our way home today, or Jesus comes back on our way home today, or he delays because he says, I've got some more people that you've got to go and witness to, and the only way to do it is when you're on white hot fire for me. So all three of those are going to happen. So that's what God's doing. He's preparing you to meet him. He's preparing to come back and get us all, or he's preparing to work something amazing right here. And either way, the diagnosis and the requirement of us is the same. Get to work in reviving your heart, and the only way to do it 
is to ask the Lord and plead with the Lord and go to the Lord over and over again. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at what the psalm says. This psalm is, starts with prayer. It starts completely with prayer. Prayer must be the place we start revival in this church. It must be the place we start revival in us. Psalm 80 is a psalm about a foreign oppressor coming in and ravaging the nation of Israel. Probably written in 722 B.C. or somewhere in that neighborhood. This is a shocking, shocking experience. But yet, look at what Asaph does. Spends a few verses and says, oh, it's bad, but Lord, turn our hearts back. Turn our hearts back. Prayer is always the backbone of revival. Because isn't there this verse, do, do we actually believe it when it says, pray without ceasing? Do we actually believe that? Because that's, that's the formula. We want revival, it starts with prayer, and it continues with prayer, and it finishes with prayer and a little more prayer on the side, because that's the picture. So do you pray? I know we've got long lists of people that need prayer, and that's, that's important, and that's something we're, we're asked to do by the Lord. Ask. But at the same time, we need to be praying for our souls and our hearts to be in the right place. And then we need to be praying for this church, and we need to make sure we're lifting this church up, that we are stoking each other's fire, not for our own little thing that we're arguing about or the thing that we're upset about, but stoking the fire of growing in our knowledge of the Lord. That's what we need to be about. We do pray every single Sunday morning at 9.15 right here in the chapel. And I know that's earlier for some of you and you can't make that. Pray on your way here. Pray after you're here. Pray while I'm speaking. Lord knows I need it. But pray, because prayer is what starts it. Every single revival in the Bible starts with prayer. There are seven of them, actually, including one under Ezra with Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Acts 2. Like, we love the Acts 2, the flames and the speaking in tongues. What were they doing before all this happened? They were praying. So this is where we need to go. We need to go to prayer. Leonard Ravenhill, kind of an expert on revival, says, to be much for God, we must be much with God. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A sinning man will stop praying, but a praying man will stop sinning. We are beggared and bankrupt, but not broken and hardly ever bent. And by bent, he means bent over in prayer. So this is our posture. This is our position we need to take is one of prayer. So here we go. Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That first part, give ear, just means listen up. God, listen to me. When we see this shepherd, I found something interesting. The last three psalms all finish with the word or something revolving around a shepherd. Psalm 77 says, he led us like a flock. Psalm 78, he shepherded them. Psalm 79, the sheep of his pasture. And then he starts this psalm, written by Asaph, in this group of four, with shepherd. He's calling out to God. There's a connection here. It says, he is above the cherubim, which means uh, upon, which means above. And it says, shine forth. This is revealing the splendor. So to kind of understand this, this is Asaph going in and saying, I I'd like to speak to the king. Can I speak to the king, please? He's asking for an audience with the king. But first, he's got to get through the cherubim. A cherubim is plural for the word cherub, 
which is the angelic beings, the guards of God. Don't confuse them with the seraphim. They're the ones with the, the, the six wings. That cherubs only have four wings and four faces. It's a little odd to kind of imagine what those words actually mean, but these are the protecting ones. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they're the ones with the flaming sword that say, no, you're not getting back in. The cherubim are the ones that are on the temple, the, the curtain in the temple that says, no, you're not getting in. And the cherubim were the ones that when God's presence left the temple in Ezekiel, they were the ones that led the presence out. So these are God's bodyguards. These are the, these are the guys that are in charge. And so he says, enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim are there. Verse 2, before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your might and come save us. So in verse 1, we had Joseph. Joseph's two children are Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin is his brother by Rachel. Rachel's children were Jacob's favorites, and so this is kind of a connection to this. And, and commentators have tried to figure out how this all works, but they all settled in different places. So this isn't a north-south thing. It's not like the divided kingdom. So there's something here, and we'll just have to ask Asaph what he meant when we get to heaven. But it says, stir up your might. Now look at these imperatives. Look at all these things that he's asking God to do. He says, give ear. So listen closely. He says, shine forth, make it glow, stir us up, and then come. He's asking God to do something. He's not just sitting back and going, well, I hope something happens. He's saying, do something, Lord. I really feel like this song is the culmination of our last three psalms. This is him saying, this is what I want you to do. Stir up your might and come save us. The message says, give us the feeling of you coming on the run before it's too late. I like that. Lord, come before it's too late. Lord, revive us before it's too late. And then we get to this refrain, verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is going to appear three separate times in this psalm. This is, a, this is a picture of what he's praying. Notice it says, restore us. That's kind of an awkward term. What it means is, turn us back. It means, grab the head and turn us the direction we need to go. Let your face shine literally means, smile your blessed smile on us. Isn't that a great picture of the Lord? Lord, smile upon us. Turn us so we're going the right direction. Smile upon us and we will be saved. There's an echo of another verse here, and it's the Aaronic blessing. And if you've listened to Christian radio at all in the last 16 months, you've heard the song called The Blessing. So this should be kind of familiar, if not just from the Bible, but from that song. And this is from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is an echo of that. And Asaph saying, Lord, look at us. Put your blessing upon us. People are literally asking for an about face, turning back to God. But a turning back is not enough. It's not enough to restore the relationship. God needs to forgive us. So there's this kind of picture of repentance here. Because repentance means to turn and go another direction. And so there's that picture here of the people confessing and repenting as well. One pastor once said, do you have a place where you can pray? 
Yes, was the pastor's cry. Here's what I want you to do in your prayer place. I want you to go to that place. I want you to kneel down. I want you to take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around where you're kneeled and then pray that God revives every single thing inside that circle and don't get up until he moves, until he does. And that's the picture that we see here is Asaph saying, Lord, I don't want to move until you turn me. I will not move from this spot until you bless me, until you revive me. This is not just a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer, a prayer of blessing that we may be saved. God eventually answers Asaph's prayer in ways he can't even imagine because ultimately we're not fully restored until Christ comes. And when Christ came and died on the cross, he fixed the relationship completely. So Asaph's asking for a turning that will never be complete, that side of the cross. But for us, it's complete. It's not only complete, but the Spirit resides in us to allow us to have that relationship with him. And praise be to God that the next step is that we get to go be with him, and it will be that way for eternity. So verses 4 through 6, he lays out the reasons why he's kind of in distress and why he feels like he needs to turn back. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. So this is the first time we see that hosts word there. This has nothing to do with welcoming people in or something like that. Instead, this word simply means armies. It means the God of the armies, and really it means heavenly armies. And so this is uh, that picture of God is the God. He's the commanding general of countless angel armies. It reminds me of the story with Elisha and the king of Syria where he says, the servant of the king of Syria says, hey, uh, how are we going to survive this? And then in 2 Kings 16, Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those with him. And then you know what happens next. He says, God, open up the servant's eyes, open up the king's eyes. And he does, and he sees the entire mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around them. These are those hosts that God's talking about. The cherubim were scary enough as the bodyguards, but now he's got all the angels as well. So this is the God that he's praying to. He's saying, God of armies, you can do anything. Come, restore us. Now, what is this anger he's talking about? Well, we've seen in Psalm 74 and Psalm 79, 78 and 77, we've seen all of this time where Israel keeps turning and going the wrong direction. And there is a repercussion here in that God is angered by it. And so this sorrow and the, the fact that God is angered with them has become the laughing stock. Look what it says at the end of verse 6. They laugh among themselves. The enemies are laughing. He's saying, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be the ones the Gentiles want to be like because we have the one true God. And instead, we're the butt of the joke. And so he's saying, this is not the way it needs to be. Does he say, God, stop being angry with us? Does he say, God, you know, stop allowing them to do this? No, he says, no, we need to be turned back to you. He's recognizing that it's us that needs the turning. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This again is a duplicate of verse 3 with a slightly different wording with the hosts added in. This is that saying, we need to return to you, Lord. 
The message, again, gives us a good translation of this. God of the angel armies, come back. Smile your blessing, smile. That will be our salvation. Your smile is what's going to save us. To have the light from God's face is not just believe in God, but to experience his presence. It's, a, it's this life being conformed to him. Not because we have some duty and we feel like we must, but a desire to love God and, and revel in his beauty. For many of us, we kind of go back and forth where we feel we have the duty and so I have to do it. And then there's the reveling and we kind of go back and forth. And mechanical religion is I do it because I'm supposed to. The reveling is I do it because I delight to. And so when we are sliding towards that, I do it because I have to, we need that revival, that keeping us from going that route so that we can get back to our first love. And this starts with prayer. Nancy Morris wrote, if our goal is revival, we will be quite unbalanced when it comes. If our goal is God, we will be able to walk with him calmly and steadfastly through years of waiting and through the joys and the victories of a season of refreshing. Christ crucified and risen is not only the door and the way, but the end also. It is our personal relationship to him which counts more than anything else. Oh, the need for men and women who know their God. The church of Christ will only arise militant and triumphant and exceedingly great army when individuals get rightly related to God. When we go to God in prayer, we are reorienting, we're allowing ourselves to position it so God can pour out his blessing, so God can revive us. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, once said, when we go to God in prayer, the devil knows we're fetching strength against him, so he's going to do all he can to oppose us. And this is what we see in the next section, because we see how the devil opposes Israel, and we see this parable of the vine. Commentators call this the ravaged vine. Starting in verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. This vine is Israel. It's a common metaphor for Israel used throughout the Bible. But what a picture this is. Look, at it says God cleared the ground, allowed it to take deep root, and allowed it to fill the land. And then they recognize that not only that, but you allowed the enemies to come in and destroy. And I love this picture here, and it's kind of hidden for us because we don't grasp it when we read this, but he's saying the four points of the compass. When he says mountains, cedars, sea, and river, the Sinai Mountains were to the south, and that's what the mountains are that are being referred to here. The cedars of Lebanon were to the north. The Mediterranean was to the west. And then the river, the Euphrates, was to the east. This is Israel at its biggest. And he's saying, God, you spread this all out. It was all you. Isn't that interesting that it's all you, Lord? How many of the kings of Israel took credit for the different things that had happened? And then the, the, the Lord had to come in and remind him, no, I did this. See, the thing about vines is vines, yeah, you know, they're, they're interesting, but we don't put them together and really we have to tell them what to do. They don't do it on their own. Christians like vines are creations of God's spirit. 
We bear fruit because he puts us where we need to be. Vines laying on the ground don't bear fruit. He lifts them up. And vines towering and tall, look at it, it says it's towering over mountains and the tallest trees. See, Christians like the vine are creations of God's supernatural grace. By ourselves, we're foolish, weak, and lowly. But through Christ, we can change the world. Israel was not the most important nation, not the most talented, not the anything. If anything, they're at the bottom of the list. And yet God used them to fill that land. But what a dramatic change in verse 13. Ravaged, destroyed, beautiful private vineyard. Okay, when it says it has walls, those are the fences around have been knocked down. Strangers, wild hogs have come in and rooted it up. When it says field animals or insects, it means the insects have invaded and the vine is withering. I mean, can you picture this? Some of you are, are gardeners in here, and you know what it's like to go out and see the damage done by one animal on your, your vineyards that you've done. Now, imagine if you've been working on that vineyard for 80 years, or some of those vineyards that you've seen in Europe that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, and someone comes in and one night just defaces it all, and it's destroyed. This is the picture of what he's seeing. But interesting, he says, God, you grew us, you made us, you developed us, but you also came in and allowed this to happen. The speaker wants God to intervene because the only power that the enemy has is what God has given him permission to have. And then we get this really intriguing two verses. Verse 14 and 15. Turn again, O God of hosts. Now that word turn again is the same root word as the ones we've been seeing all the way through. The restore. But look at the focus here. Turn again, O God of hosts. It's focused on God now. He says, God, we need you to turn to us as well. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard on this vine, the stock of your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Turn again. Come back. This refrain that we've seen over and over again, this is God's portion of it. It's interesting that it says God needs to come and smile on us. And he says, God, you can smile on us because you made us. We are your sons and daughters. Have regard for this vine means pay attention. Give us your attention again. Three times he asked God for us to be fixed. One time he asked God to fix himself. One writer said, God is more willing to give us revival than we are to receive it. I think this psalm clearly lays that out. We would much rather have revival in someone else, and we'd much rather have God just send his blessing than to have us actually experience revival. The psalmist knows this, and he gets it. It says, for the son whom you've made strong, that word son means branches. So these are the branches that you've made strong. Lord, come in. Again, the message did a good job with this one. God of angel armies, turn our way. Take a good look at what's happening and attend to this vine. Care for what you once tenderly planted, the vine you raised from a shoot. See, Israel has a history with God, and they're calling again on God to step in and fix it. There's all sorts of kind of little echoes here of the Exodus, of the way God cared for Israel in the Exodus. We've seen it throughout. He's saying, the God who worked wonders in planting Israel, come in and turn your attention to us. Turn us back to you. Verses 16 through 18, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. 
May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. That idea of the man of your right hand means Israel. It's kind of a play on words of Benjamin's name, whose Benjamin's name is son of my right hand. He says, Israel, you're, you're my kid. You're the one who's there. Give us life. That word is revive. That's what that word means. It means to revive us. So if you don't know Christ and you're here with us, that's life for the first time. That's real living. This all, all this living that we see outside of Christ is dead living. But inside of Christ, it's real living. And for those of you that are, that are believers, this is getting back to that first love. It's that revival, that growing of life again inside of you. One reason the New Testament writers called Jesus God's Son and the Son of Man is to show He embodies all the promises here. He is the complete fulfillment of all of these psalms. And then verse 18, look at this pledge of the people. We shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. This is a call to commitment. This is a call to pray this way. Lord, return me to you, revive me, and then help me to hold on to you for dear life. God, our shepherd, our caretaker, our deliverer, we're calling on him. We need you again today. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the fourth time in the psalm that the psalmist has asked for somebody to turn God was one three times here. But for revival to happen, it starts with us. The psalm makes it clear. The problem is not God. The problem is us. We need life. And it's building. Do you see the building here? Look at verse 3. It says, God, restore us, O God. And then it says in verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Now it says, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. It's building. He's, he's laying out, God, it's coming. You see the crescendo. This is building. It's going to happen. See, here's the thing. We misunderstand what God's purpose is for everything in our lives. Whether it be whatever pandemic or crisis we're dealing with, whether it be simple something that you had happen this morning before you came to church. God's desire for our lives is not our happiness. It's not our contentment. It's not with being happy with how things are going, enjoying things the way they are or how they used to be. Instead, it's our holiness. God desires our holiness. See, when we have this life inside of us, this revived life that we've been talking about, it produces a life of holiness. And that's his desire for us. Holiness is not our default. As a matter of fact, we kick pretty hard against holiness. But the Lord is working on each of us to be more holy, more humble, to bring us to life. He's been doing it through everything, through COVID, through your adoption by new life, through the thousands of instances every single day. Our problem is, is we just don't see them. We see them as, oh man, why did I hit that red light? Oh man, I can't believe I have to stay and do extra work. Oh, man, my job got taken away. I mean, just fill it in. All the bad things, and guess what? All the good things are there to drive us to holiness, to drive us to the life we're meant to have. 
So are you praying for revival? Are you? Because the first prayer for revival starts with praying for yourself. Because it starts right here. It's not about what I do up here. It's not about what new life does. It's not about what the state of Oregon does. It's not about what fill-in-the-blank does. It starts with each and every one of us in our hearts with a mini-revival right here. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Revival brings. What does it bring? It becomes the thing that absorbs you. It becomes the thing that you can't help but talk about. It becomes the thing that absorbs all of your interest and when you get together, it's all you can talk about. Think about what we've been spending all of our time talking about for the last 15 months. What would have been the case if we'd have been spending that 15 months talking about Christ? I think that would have been a much different 15-month experience for a lot of us, wouldn't it? And I'm just as bad. <laughs> I'm just as bad. We need to get to where everything is related to our revival because whether we like it or not, everything is related to our revival because God is the ultimate reality and it's our interactions with him that actually matter. So what do we need to do with this? Well, I've got four steps that we're gonna, we're gonna hit right here at the end. The first one, we need to pray. We need to start with prayer. And like I said, I probably would, if I was to go back and redo this slide, I would just say prayer, because it's not just we start and then we get to the point where we don't have to pray anymore. No, it's continuing in prayer and ending in prayer, extra prayer. We need to pray for a revival. And some of you here, you are prayer warriors, and you're praying for other people in here, and you're praying for people that we don't even know, but pray for revival. All of us need revival. What's your prayer life like? Are you praying for revival? The second thing we need to do is we need to preach the word. Now, it would be easy for me to say, well, that's my job because I'm doing it right now. It's true. The best way to revive a church is to build a fire in the pulpit. That's my intention. That's a metaphor, okay? All right? But it starts with God's word. But if you remember, there's other preachers in the room. I know I'm not talking about elders or Ross. I'm talking about each and every one of you. You preach to yourself way more than I do, and you listen a lot better than when you listen to me. And we preach to each other. So we need to preach the word to each other. And we do this by how we talk about the word, our focus on the word. The third one, we need to submit to the word. Does scripture reign in our hearts? Does the word reign? Or to something else? Do you desire to do whatever the word requires? Or are you kicking against it? There is a coming back to the Bible. And that is to come under the Bible. Under the sway of the Bible. A pastor was once asked by a, a congregant, besides praying for revival, what else can I do to bring it about? And the pastor says, you can let it start with you. And that's us. We have to submit to the word. And the word is life. You need life. You need holiness. And you can't do it. So you have to submit to the word and allow the Lord to do it in you. Pray for a filling up of the spirit. And then finally, obey the word. When you submit to the word, it leads to a new allegiance to the word. 
This is not measured by emotional highs and I feel the goosebumps and I feel the worship today. It's deep-rooted obedience at all costs. We live in a place in the world where it is easy to sort of follow Christ. And it's actually pretty easy to follow Christ. It's very difficult elsewhere in the world. That doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Are we willing to obey at any cost? Because right now, obedience for most of us is not we're going to go stand on a street corner and worry about being put to death. It's about repenting for the things that I want to hold on to. That's where the obedience is lacking. And honestly, that seems a lot easier than standing on the street corner and risking your life. But we still struggle with that. So we have to decide together Are we wanting revival or are we wanting status quo the way it's always been? The status quo the way it's always been, the dead fish goes with the flow. The live fish swims upstream. If we want life in this church, if we want life in this community, it starts with each of us individually. So I'll leave you with this. We want this revival not for experience, not for excitement, but so that his mighty hand may be known, his great name glorified and magnified first among us, then our church, and then our community. And that is my prayer for you today. But it starts with you and your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you care for each and every one of us. You want life for each and every one of us. There is not a single person in this room that you did not die for. There's not a single person in this room that you do not have life to pour out abundantly. No matter what we've done, where we've been, what's happened to us, what we thought of you as we walked in the door this morning, you want to give us life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would stir that up in us. Help us to have life growing up in us that we can't even contain it. And then, Lord, I pray that it spreads throughout this church and then throughout this community. Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do. In your name, amen.